0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. On September 9th, 1957, or 1857, there was a hurricane off the coast of South Carolina. Any of y'all Remember that hurricane? Probably not. Uh, but this, this hurricane was a, a Class 4 hurricane, and while it was off the coast of South Carolina, a ship got caught in its, in its path. This ship was the SS Central America. The ship got caught in the storm and battled for two days to stay afloat. The boilers uh, stopped working. The sails got destroyed. And eventually, uh, after two days, the ship lost its battle. And on September eleventh, 1857, it sank to the bottom of the ocean off of the coast of South Carolina. When it sank, it took 425 people with it. 425 passenger and crew died in the sinking of the SS Central America. But besides just the loss of life, it took something else down with it as well. It took 30,000 pounds of gold, valued today at over $550 million. That's a lot of gold. And as the ship sank and went to the bottom of the ocean, it was lost to the world forever, most people thought. It stayed down there for 130 years until an engineer named Tommy Thompson built an underwater robot to go down and find the sunken ship and find the treasure. And then he built another robot to go down and retrieve the treasure. Now, he didn't get all 30,000 pounds of gold, but he did get 20,000 pounds of gold. So, if you're interested, there's still 10,000 pounds of gold at the bottom of the ocean off of South Carolina somewhere. So, if you feel like going, feel free, have fun, just tithe on what you find. But, so he found, and he was able to recover, over 20,000 pounds of gold. And he had to go down over 8,000 feet under the ocean deeper than anyone had ever gone before, and he did this to find this treasure. The Washington Post said this on December 14, 2016. He said he spent years studying the ship's fateful voyage and developing the technology to plunge deeper in the ocean than anyone had before to retrieve its treasure. The treasure trove is the richest in American history and the deep water salvage effort, the most ambition undertaken anywhere. For 130 years, a treasure worth over half a million dollars, I'm sorry, half a billion dollars, over 550 million dollars a treasure worth 550 million dollars sat on the bottom of the ocean. Can you imagine how many people sailed over that spot over that 130 30 years and had no idea what was under there? Had no idea what was just below the surface, if they could just get deep enough. And it, it stayed there until someone was willing to dive deep enough to find it. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 when he says, oh, the depth and riches of both the wisdom, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The word unsearchable in the Greek means impossible to find the depths or the end of. Here's what Paul's saying. You can search all you want in the scriptures and you will never exhaust the riches and the glory of the truth of who God is. Every day we have this treasure that we can have access to, this treasure of of knowing God and walking with God and fellowshipping with God, and we are invited to explore the depths of who He is to discover the treasure of the glory of God but most believers just kind of gloss over the surface. They never really get deep and truly understand the glory and the majesty of who God is. They miss the treasure of knowing God. The glory and the treasure and the knowledge and the wonder of God is there for us to explore and us to dig deep into. See, most of us just gloss the surface. See, God is bigger than our, comp- than our ability to comprehend him, and yet he has invited us into a satisfying pursuit of discovering the wonder of who he is. And there is nothing on this earth, and no one on this earth will satisfy our soul like God. We'll never be satisfied apart from truly getting to know God. John Piper says this, He says, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far, far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. We need a dose of the greatness of God in our lives. See, the things of this world, either the things we're pursuing, the things we're chasing after, the things we're trying to achieve, or the problems we face, the trials, the burdens, the difficulties, the things of this world become small when we see how great and powerful God is. But the thing is, the things of the world seem big when we have a small view of God. And when we have a small view of God and a big view of the things of the world and we, we try to get these things of the world, we, we get these things and we try to achieve these things and they, they never truly satisfy. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to dive deep into Psalms 145 and look at the glory of God. And we're going to do this by studying this one chapter to see God's glory, to see who God is is now psalm 145 is the beginning of the end of the book of psalms there's only 150 psalms and so 145 is kind of the beginning of the wrapping up of the book of psalms and of course the book of psalms is the song book of israel as we read these we need to understand that the israelites would sing these They would sing these as songs and praise to God. They're like our hymn book or our praise book. So they would look at these psalms and they would sing these psalms and they would be praises and worship to God. Now, this psalm uh, is the only psalm called a psalm of praise by David. So if you have your Bibles, look at them. Not not your, your, your online Bible, your Bible Bible, your paper Bible. Most Bibles, not all of them, but most Bibles and Psalms, they have uh, the, the Psalm number, then they kind of have like a heading or a title of the Psalm. who's has that? Anybody has that? All right, most of them do. Here's something, you need. these these kind of titles, they are in the original Hebrew. They're not added by the translators, they were in the original Hebrew. So when this Psalm was written, yours should say, David's Psalm of Praise. How many of y'all say it. something like that? David's Psalm of Praise, right. All right, look at Psalm 143. What's it say? Just a psalm of David, right? That's what most of them say if they're written by David, they're a psalm of David. Well, Psalm 142 says, Mishael of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. So some of them have a description as to when they were written. For instance, Psalm 131 uh, talks about David's song, David's song after he repented of Bathsheba. So they kind of give us a detail of what was going on. But Psalm 145 is the only psalm in the entire Bible that was David's psalm of praise. Theologians tell us that this tells us that this was David's favorite psalm. This was the psalm that David returned to when things got hard in his life. This was the psalm that David returned to that he would meditate on, that he would rest in during difficult times. When when David's life was kind of not going as it was, he would return to this psalm and he would praise God through this psalm. It was his favorite psalm. Now, this psalm is only 21 verses long. But it's filled with incredible truth. And as we go through this psalm, as we go through this chapter together, I want us to do something together. I want us to memorize this psalm together. Now, I know what you're thinking, preacher. You already got us reading the Bible, New Testament, through in a year. Now you got us praying before church. You got us going out canvassing. Now you got us memorizing scripture. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to make you a better Christian. So we're going to memorize Scripture together. And look, memorizing Scripture is a command that is seen throughout the Bible. It's a very common theme in Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs. In fact, the first seven chapters of Proverbs, every single chapter has a command by God to memorize Scripture. But let's look at just one of them. And, oh, am I there. I'm not there? I'm not there. I didn't put it on there. My bad. Let's look at one of them in so Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, My son... Keep my words. That word keep there in the Greek is in the imperative. You know what that means? It means it's a command. It's a command by God. My son, keep my words. It's not a suggestion. God is saying keep words. My words and lay up thy commandments with thee. Keep again in the imperative. My commandments and live and my law and, and live in and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them again. That word bind is in the imperative upon thy fingers. Write them. That's an imperative upon thine heart. So God is commanding us keep my words, bind them upon your fingers and write them on your heart. God is commanding us. To memorize scripture. Later on in Psalms and Proverbs it says, How shall a young man cleanse thy way? By keeping heed thereto Into thy word. How do you take heed to his word? By memorizing it. So I want to memorize this chapter together. Now there are several ways you can do this. Again, there's 21, 21 verses. We'll be here for probably 10 or 11 weeks. So just memorize two verses a week. Just two verses a week. Every one of us can do that. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can write them on note cards and put them on your, in, your, in your house, on your mirror maybe. Uh, maybe put them on your TV. Put them on your refrigerator. You know, places you go most of the time. Uh, put them in your car. So wherever you're at, when you see that verse, you just remember to, to see that verse. Here's one thing you can do. Every week, read the psalm through at least one time. Just one time. Well, preacher, you already got us reading Matthew. It's not going to kill you to read a little more scripture. So read a little more scripture and just read the song through one time. There's another way you can do it. There's a free Bible app called Verses, and that's what it looks like. You download this Bible app. I know some of you people who don't know what, what, what apps are, but you download this Bible app. It's on iOS or Android. It's free. So you download this app. You pick the verses, and then every day of the week, you can, there are games to help you memorize these verses. It will read it to you, It will. you can read it out loud, but then there's, there's games, and I've played a couple of them where like the words are missing and you've got to fill in the blank, and each time you go through a level, more and more words become missing, so you play these games, and look, we all like playing games. So you play a game, and while you're playing a game, you memorize scripture, but we can memorize this verse, these chap- this chapter together, but today, let's go ahead and just dive in To chapter number 145, we're going to read the first two verses. These are the first two you can memorize this week. So we're going to read these verses together. So Psalm 145, starting in verse number 1. The Bible says, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Now, whenever I'm studying the Bible, uh, I always tend to ask myself a couple questions as I'm reading to kind of help me understand what's going on in Scripture. So we're going to ask these questions as we go through this, this chapter. But here's the first question. What do these verses tell me about God? What are these verses teaching me about God? So before we see that, you need to understand a very real truth. As a believer, you have an enemy. You have an enemy that is set out, the Bible says, to, to kill and steal and destroy. He is out to get you. And the thing you need to understand about your enemy is your enemy is a liar. Look what the Bible says in John eight forty four about him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. You know how the enemy destroys our lives by lying to us, by telling us lies that we and we've seen it from the beginning. He doesn't come out and blatantly lie to you about things you would never really believe. He subtly lies. You remember what he did to Eve. He comes out and says, "Hey, did God really say that if you eat that fruit you're going to die?" You know what? I bet God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows if you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. So he suddenly lies to us and gets us to believe things that are not true about God. So the enemy, the way he works, is destruction by deception. He will lie and tell you things will make you happy. A job will make you successful things. People will make you feel content and fulfilled and have peace. And when you get the thing, he lies to you and says, hey, this is what you need to finally feel content. This is what you need to have to finally be fulfilled, to finally get the recognition you need. When you finally get that thing, you realize he lied to you because it doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't make you feel the way you thought it would. Marriages have been destroyed Because someone believed the lie of the enemy. Someone believed your wife's not treating you like you deserve to be treated, but this woman will. And they believed that lie and destroyed their marriage. Families have been destroyed, have been ripped apart, Because someone believed the lie of the enemy. Someone believed, hey, if you just get all these, I know you got to work extra hours and maybe go into debt you can't afford, but you get more credit, you get a bigger credit card, and you can buy all this stuff, and all this stuff will make you happy, and you get all this stuff, and you ruin your finances, and you go into bankruptcy, and you lose your house, and your family is ripped apart because someone believed the lie. Ministries have been ruined because someone believed the lie of the enemy. And the primary way that he lies to us is about the person and the character of God. He says God is a ruthless judge that demands perfection. That God hates us having fun and hates us having pleasure and he's this vengeful angry God just waiting to smite us with lightning if we step out of line in any way shape or form waiting to punish us and that's a lie he says that God is too big for my problems you know God's taking care of the universe he's got the the stars in the sky he's got to keep going he's got to keep the planets rotating around he's got way too much going on to worry about you You are too insignificant for God, and he doesn't really care. We've all felt that way sometimes, that's a lie of the enemy. You may not have said it, but we we felt it. Life gets hard. Trials come, burdens come, and we, we think, well, I guess God just doesn't care enough about me to get involved. That's a lie of the enemy. Satan lies and says that God exists. Here's another lie. He, he lies and says that God exists to make me happy. God's my genie in a bottle. Anything I need, I just rub that bottle. Poof! Here comes my magic genie, and God gives me what I want. So if I'm not happy, God's not doing His job. But God never promised us happiness. God promises joy, which is vastly different than forgiveness. But here's, here's the worst way that He lies to us. He lies to us and tells us that God is just like us because he has limitations. And here's what I mean. Yeah, God will forgive you, but there's a limit to his forgiveness. God will show mercy, but there's a limit to the mercy he can give. God's gracious, but don't test the grace of God because eventually that grace runs out. There's limits to God's love. Yes, God is love, but... He can't love those type of people because of what they've done. These are lies about God. And the key to the Christian life is exposing the lies of the enemy to the truth of the word of God. And then by faith, believing what the Bible says over what the enemy says tells us. And we're going to see some truth about who God is, and we're going to allow it to expose the lies of the enemy that we believe so we can grow our faith. So here's the first thing that these verses tell us about who God is. These verses tell me that God is God. That seems pretty obvious, right? But I'll show you what I mean here. The first title is, that David uses to express praise to God in this psalm is the title God. He said, I'll extol thee, my God. Now, the word God there is the Hebrew word Elohim, it's used 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And this word, the most common use of this Hebrew word, Elohim, is to describe the person and the character of God. When this word is used, it means the one true and living God. Not one of many gods. Not a God. Not some God, but the one true living God. His name is Elohim. His name is Yahweh. God is who he is. But what's interesting is this word is a plural noun. Elohim, the one true living God, but it's in the plural form. Now what's that make you think of? Of course, God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. It's another truth of the Trinity. So even in the name, we see the wonder of God. He is the one true living God manifested in three distinct persons. That's why in Genesis 1, the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? It's not the angels. It's God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, how can we explain that? I've heard people use all kinds of metaphors to try to explain the Trinity. Of course, I've heard about the water. You know, water, if you uh, keep it at room temperature, it's liquid. You boil it, it becomes steam. You freeze it, it becomes ice. But it's all H2O. No matter what form it takes, it's still water. So that's like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. I've heard other people use the analogy of an egg which I don't really understand, but but anyway, uh, I've heard people use that analogy. And here's the thing, the Trinity is hard to explain and hard to understand because there are things about God we're not meant to understand right now. Bible says our thoughts are not His thoughts. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. There are things we will not understand about God until we get to heaven, and that's okay. It's okay, because here's the thing. If I understood every aspect of God, and how God worked, and how creation worked, and I understood everything, He's not a very big God. Because He's as big as I can understand. But some people think, well, I can't understand that, so I'm just going to ignore that. Look, I don't understand how a brown cow eats green grass, makes white milk that becomes yellow butter, orange cheese, and strawberry ice cream, but I like them all. I eat every single one of them. I don't understand it, but I enjoy it. I don't understand all the aspect of the wonder and glory of God, but I enjoy it. This is the title that David uses for the first time, and it's given to God in the Bible. There's the same word that's used first time for God in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God, Elohim. So before the beginning began, there was God. And that causes wonder and awe. Eddie B. Pink says this. He says, in the beginning, God, this is the foundational truth of all real theology. God is the great originator and initiator. It is the ignoring of this which is the basic error in all human schemes. False systems of theology and philosophy begin with man and seek to work up to God. But this is a turning of things upside down. We must, in all our thinking, begin with God and work down to man. The meaning of life can only be understood when you start with God. And our world is very man-centered. We think man is the center of the story. And it's affected every aspect of, of how we live. It's even affected how we do church. We feel God exists to, to make us happy and we have a man-centered view of God. We we don't start with what the Bible says. We start with some felt need. We think of community needs and then try to find a Bible verse to back it up. When we put man at the center, we ignore what the scripture says. We have a man-centered theology of worship. We come to church not for the glory of God, but for how good the church makes us feel. What can this church do for me? How can this church make me feel better? And we're coming to the church not to glorify God, but to make us feel good. We have a man centered view in our singing when the songs focus not on who God is, but what God does for me. It's one of the reasons I I hate that song, I got a mansion over hilltop, and now I know Trudy's gonna play it at the invitation. You know, I got a mansion over a hilltop. First of all, we don't know that. The Bible says in my house are many mansions. Doesn't say we get one. Number two, that word mansion means just a bunch of room. Jesus just saying, in my father's house, there's room for everybody. When we sing in my, I, over the hill, I got a mansion over the hilltop, we're singing, God's given me a mansion. We shouldn't sing about what God gives us. We should sing about how glorious and how majestic and how incredible God is. David begins by reminding us, life doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. And God is God. And when God is most glorified in our lives, That is when we are most satisfied with our lives. So we find fulfillment in God being God. The enemy says fulfillment comes from God meeting our needs, but that's a lie. Fulfillment comes from us seeing the greatness and the glory of God. But here's another thing that David tells us. Not only is God is God, he says God is king. I will extol thee. My God, O King. The word king here that's used in Hebrew, it's used 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And when it's used, it describes one with power, one with authority. When it's used to describe God, it shows him ruling over his people. The synonyms for the word king are Lord, Captain, Prince, Chief. Ruler, what this refers to, it refers to the sovereignty of God. It refers to the truth that God rules over everything. That God is in complete and total control. See, the enemy tells us, well, he created the world and he created life, but creation is not really in his control anymore. He just kind of started this ball rolling and he's kind of watching to see how it ends. God is not just our creator, he is our king. See, what that means is he didn't just start this thing and sit back and watch it unravel. He is sitting on the throne of the universe in total control. Look what Isaiah 66 says about this. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the heavens is my throne And the earth, my footstool? Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place for my rest? Here's what that tells us it says that God says, The heavens are my throne. So here's the heavens. What are the heavens? Everything. It's the universe. You know how big the universe is? No, because no one does. It's still growing. We have no idea how long it's going to take us to find the universe because it keeps expanding. And it's that huge. And God says, I am sitting on the universe as my throne. And where's my feet? They're propped up on the earth. The earth's my footstool. I can't sit like this forever. But the earth's my footstool. He says, I am in complete and total control. I sit on the heavens, and my stu- the earth is my footstool. Look how, look how it ends. It says, where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? You know what God's saying? God says, I'm sitting on heaven, putting my feet on earth. What kind of box are you going to build for me to fit in? kind of box are you going to stick me in? And where is the place of my rest? He goes, everything is under my control. What do you think you can, you can do that I can't, can't, can't take control of? What that means is whatever you are facing today, God is on the throne. God is in control. You know, this year UVA has not been the best to me in basketball. It's been a rough year. But we won the national championship last year, and so Stephen A. says that we have five years we can't complain, so I'm not complaining this year. It's a rebuilding year. We're okay. We're still defending national champs. That's more than tech can say amen. But whenever I watch a game this year, it's very aggravating. And so I'm usually sitting forward, yelling at the TV, Come on, Tony! Do something! I'm very frustrated. You know, last year, until we got to the Final Four, I kind of watched the games lean back, resting, because, oh, we got this. We're whipping Duke. We're whipping Luke. We got them all. This year, you know, me and John every year make a bet who's going to win UVA or Duke. I'm not making that bet this year, because I don't want to have to wear a Duke sweatshirt to church. So I'm not making that bet, But when I watch the game, I'm going to be nervously watching forward. God says, I'm just, lean back. i got everything in control. Your problems are okay with me. I can take care of them. I can control them. Nothing worries God. You know, everything worries us, but nothing worries God. That means whatever you're facing, God is in control. God has not forgotten you. God is sovereign and you can trust him. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy that says he's forgotten about you or he doesn't care. Look, it may not look like he's involved, but everything is under the control of our heavenly father because God is king. Not only God is king, God is knowable. Don't miss this. He says, I will extol thee, my God. He didn't say I will extol thee, God. He didn't say, I will extol thee, a God. He said, I will extol thee, my God. That's a personal pronoun that emphasizes a relationship. If you're a dad, raise your hand. If you're a dad in here, raise your hand. Anybody, a father? All right, I got a couple hands not raised. I know our dads. Keep your hands up. You all are dads. All right, okay. All right, you can put them down. You know what you are to me? You're a dad. You're not my dad. You're a dad. You know what you are to your kids? Your kids get to say, that's my dad. So when your kids have problems, when your kids need advice, when your kids need something to work through or need some help, you know who they go to? They don't go to just a dad. They go to my dad. Why? Because they've established a relationship. Their dad is relationally connected to them. Their dad has invested in them. Their dad believes in them. Their dad cares about them. Their dad loves them and will take care of them much more than just a dad will. Well, it's one thing to be a dad, but it's another to be my dad. And David says, you are my God. You're not a God. You're not even the God. You're my God. You know what that tells us? You can run to your God today. No matter what you're facing. No matter what you're going through. No matter what burden you carry, you can run to your God. Now look, here's the thing. If you don't know him, you can today. Maybe you don't know him as your Savior. Maybe you're like, I don't know who this God you're talking about is. You don't know him, but you can have a relationship with him today. You can understand that you were born a sinner condemned to hell, but Jesus, because God loved you, Jesus came in the form of a baby, was born of a virgin, lived a perfectly sinless life, died on the cross of death that you should have died, shed his blood, was buried, and rose three days later to redeem you to God the Father. And all you've got to do to know God is put your faith and trust in what he did. And you do that, you can know God. You can have him as your God. Look back at Psalm, one, at Psalm 66, verse 1. It says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye built unto me, and where is the place of my rest? And look what he says in verse 2. For all those things that hath mine hand, hath mine hand made... And all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God is on the throne, God is in control, but God will look to us. Look, God will pay attention to us. God, the sovereign God, will take all of his attention and fix it on him that is humble, that is contrite, and that trembles at his word. That means he is not some distant God. He is a God that you can know. He is a God that loves you and wants to focus on you. Now, we don't deserve that, but because of Jesus, we can have that. The Bible says that our sin... Separates us from God, but because of Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, our sins can be forgiven and you can be brought into a relationship with God this morning. So if you don't know God, you can today. But if you do know God, maybe you need to make a fresh run at coming back to Him. Come back to God. Stop skimming the surface and dive deep into who He is. That's the first question I ask. What does this Bible what does this verse say about God? It says he is king, He is God, and he is noble, but there's the second question I ask: How should I respond to this truth? Three quick ways, and it will be dismissed. David tells us three ways to respond. He says, we to are to extol God. That means that I should honor God above everything else. above your marriage, above your children, above your job, above everything else. God takes priority. We are to honor him above all. We are, the word extol means to honor, to, and the root means to raise high. Here's what that means. God is not my buddy. God is not my co-pilot. God is not my homeboy or the man upstairs. God is not to be regulated to a box In my life, because he is God, because he is king, because he is knowable, I am to place him in a position of honor above everything else in my life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He goes, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's what it means. Students, kids that go to school tomorrow, listen up. Your most important job at school tomorrow is not to learn. Now you still got to learn. But your most important job is to glorify God. When you all go to work tomorrow, all you that got jobs, yeah, you got, you got to work your job, you got to do whatever you got to do, whatever the boss pays you to do. But your most important aspect of that job is to bring honor and glory to God. The most important aspect of your family, yes, to rear the kids, to have fun, to keep them safe. But the most important aspect of your family is to bring honor and glory to God. As a citizen, the most important thing about me as a citizen is not my rights. The most important thing about me as as a citizen is to bring honor to God. Because he is king, because he is God, I should honor him above all things. But then it says, not only do I I extol him, I to bless him. It says, I will bless thy name. I've I've struggled with this this word for a while. How do you bless God? I mean, he's God. I remember when I was in Bible college... There was a guy who was in my my preaching class, and he got up. And this guy, he he dropped out shortly after and became a crazy, insane cult leader. I'll tell you his life if you ask. But he he went nuts, and he's all over YouTube as a nutcase. But uh, he he got up and preached one day, and during services and during uh, chapel, whenever the preacher would say something, people would say, "Bless God, bless God," you know, kind of excited, kind of there, amen. And he got up and he started just yelling that we shouldn't say bless God because we don't bless God. God blesses us. And he went off like 10 minutes. And so I got up after him. It was my turn. And all I did was read every verse that says, bless the Lord of my soul. I will bless his holy name. I just read those verses. We do bless God. But I have struggled. How do I bless God? I mean, what what do you get? God. There's nothing I can give him. There's nothing he needs. But the word bless here, it means that I should submit to God in all things. Because the word bless in the Hebrew means to bend the knee. What do you do when you come into a a king's presence? You bend the knee to them. You bow to them. I won't do it because I won't get up. But you bend the knee. You honor them. You humble yourself before them. When you come into the presence of a king, you bend to their authority. So David says that he will submit himself to him forever and every day. Because he is God, because he is king, in every moment I am to submit my will to his will. So we need to ask ourselves, is there any area of our life that we are not submitting to God as king maybe it's the words we use maybe it's the 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 actions some action that we're doing maybe it's a reaction or a relationship or an attitude that we have that we're not submitting to God some of us need to give a fresh surrender to God in every area of our life see right now God may be showing you something that he wants you to submit to him Something that he says, this is not in my complete and total control. You believe the lie that you know more than God about that particular area. And that leads to destruction. We are to extol him, honor him. We are to bless him, humble and submit ourselves to him. And then we are to praise him. This means that to praise God at all times. The word praise here means to shine or shout. It was most commonly used when talking about the Levites who praised God in song. You know what David's saying here? I'm going to sing praises to God all the time. You know, you can sing praise songs more than just in church on Sunday morning. You can sing it Monday going to work in your your car. You can put it in your earbuds and sing it through work and don't care what people say. You can sing praises to God all the time. Not just in church. Do it at home. Do it in your car. Do it everywhere. David says, I will praise Him forever and ever. That means I'll praise Him in the good times. When I wake up and I'm feeling great and everybody's healthy and there's plenty of money in the bank and everything's going well, I'm going to praise God. When I wake up and I'm sick and I hurt and I'm dealing with death and I'm dealing with pain and there's heartache and there's heartbreak. I'm still going to praise God. Because he is God, because he is king, because he is knowable, he deserves my honor. He deserves my submission. He deserves my praise. He is God. He is in control. He is knowable. He wants a relationship with me. And because of this, I should honor him. I should submit to him and I should praise him daily.